Good morning. Welcome to this week's edition of Wednesdays in the Word. Hi, my name is Gary Cooney, and I'm so glad you could be with me as we continue to study God's Word together, unfolding it verse by verse. We're in the midst of an extended study of the book of Romans, and today we begin looking at chapter 8 of the book of Romans. I'm going to read today, starting in verse 1 of chapter 8 through verse 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. As you know, we've been in the midst of an extended study of the book of Romans. We've been in the chapter 7 for some time now. And in chapter 7, we were discovering more about the nature of sin in the life of the believer, the redeemed believer. As you remember, chapters 1 to 5 was expressing the issues related to sin in this world. And how all are sinners and separated from God because of that sin. And how the gospel tells us that message which can deliver us from accountability for sin. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. But starting in chapter 6, the scene shifts and we're now turning attention just to the believers, to those who have accepted the gospel and have benefited from it. And the believer still understands the reality that sin has not gone away because they have been saved, because they have been redeemed. And so chapter 7 has been explaining to us how sin works to deceive us and defeat us. And it gave us five truths that we summarized together. Let me briefly summarize them because that's the backdrop for these verses we've examined today in chapter 8. Truth number one, as you remember, is that God tells us in the scriptures that when we responded to the gospel accepted that message, which is in Romans 1.16, the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. God worked a miracle within you and within me to make me a new creation. In other words, he changes us fundamentally at the deepest level. Our core has been changed. We are not who we were prior to responding to the gospel. The issue, however, for the believer is that despite that change within, we see in the members of our body, is the phrase that Romans 7 uses, another law at work. In other words, what is true now at our core is not necessarily true at our crust. The second of the truths is that our body, building on that truth, has not yet been changed, even though our, our inner deepest level of us has been changed. New creations living yet in fallen bodies. <laughs> a new core, but a fallen body living in the midst of a fallen world with a very real enemy of our souls, Satan, continuing to attack us. The other thing we discovered about that is that this fallen body in which our new life inside, our new creation inhabits, is a body that's greatly influenced by the old person that we were before being made new in Christ. 
then many habits of acting and many habits of thinking are rooted in that old man. The third truth, building on those truths, is that sin, therefore, is going to continue to oppose us in this fallen body. Sin is alive and kicking even though you and I have been saved, even though you and I in the Lord Jesus Christ have passed out of condemnation into life. And that is the reason where when we decide to want to live and act in a way in accord with the new self that we have, this new creation, we find there's another law at work in our bodies seeking to battle that choice and inclination. The fourth of the truths that chapter 7 explained to us is that we need to keep reminding ourselves, keeping us straight about it, that I am of the flesh, meaning by that, I have a physical body that I'm inhabiting that continues to be influenced by the old man. It continues to be influenced by the allure and the temptation of sin. It's not just my new creation, my new self that's influencing me, the old self, the old world around me, and Satan himself are still influencing me. And therefore, there's a war going on inside. <laughs> a war between the new self and the old self. Between the new self and Satan. Between the new self and the world system, culture, that surrounds us. The final truth that chapter 7 underscored for us is this. The new self, the new creation that we've become, by itself, cannot win this battle. Now, Understand, as a new creation, we've passed out of judgment into life. The battle for our eternal destiny has been settled. But the continuing battle within us for control in the present, living for the glory of God or living under the influences of sin, that battle cannot be won in our own strength. We can't do that. Even though we've become new creations, we do not have strength inherently that allows us to succeed in the battle that's raging. And therefore, as Paul puts it under direction of the Holy Spirit, who will deliver me from this body of death? In other words, I'm facing this battle. I'm not successful in facing this battle. Who will deliver me? And the answer, of course, is that God will deliver us through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who now takes up residence in our life. You see, when you and I were redeemed, we were not only made new creations, but we were indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. This deliverance, this solution, not in our own strength, but in God's strength, becomes the dominant focus of much of chapter 8 of the book of Romans. And we'll be getting into more about that. So now let's get into that chapter 8. I hope that summary has been helpful for you so that you understand again the implications of chapter 7. Now let's begin to look at chapter 8. Chapter 8 begins not by talking to us more about the deliverance that we have in the Holy Spirit's enablement, but it begins by addressing some other issue. And what is that issue? It is an issue having to do with wonderful news for wretched believers. Back in chapter 7, verse 24, Paul says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Well, God starts out with some good news for wretched people. Before explaining how to appropriate the power and enablement of the Holy Spirit in this battle that continues with sin in this life, God addresses a common feeling. You and I, as redeemed believers, have a commonality with each other. 
Chapter 7, verse 18, put that commonality in this way. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Now, let me ask you, isn't that the true commonality of your life? Isn't that the point of connection, perhaps, between you and even me as I'm teaching you these things? Can't we both voice and say amen in our heart before the Lord? I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. This lack of ability, the desire without the ability to carry it out, frustrates us. It makes us into people who feel wretched about ourselves. Remember again, that verse 24, oh wretched man that I am. Now, this feeling of wretchedness, this feeling of frustration and failure to see what we want to do carried out in what we actually do, can in inevitably breed another thought. Another thought in you and another thought in me. And the thought is this. If I struggle in this way, if I still stumble, if I still discover I don't have the ability to carry it out, then I wonder, am I even saved? Has that thought ever occurred to you? Especially in those times of despair where you find yourself falling so far short of what you want to be and what you intend to do. Satan takes that inevitable thought, and it is inevitable, brothers and sisters, he takes that inevitable thought and he magnifies it. He accuses us. He plants within us those very thoughts. He says, yes, I wonder that you are. Perhaps you're not. Perhaps you just are lying to yourself. Perhaps you're just deceiving yourself. Maybe you're not saved at all. If you have this struggle going on, how could you possibly be saved? And so Satan aggravates what we already will feel, which is this sense of not only failure and wretchedness, but insecurity. And he stirs it up within. You've experienced that. I don't even have to sit down with you. I know you've experienced it because the scripture makes it plain to us. All of us have experienced this. And that is the reason that God begins chapter 8 by addressing our tendency toward insecurity before he turns attention to addressing victory in the day-to-day struggle with sin. I'm so glad God knows us so perfectly, and I'm so glad as he's breathed out his word in the scriptures that he addresses this very real issue a very real issue that we feel deeply, but sometimes are even afraid to express to brothers and sisters in Christ. (laughs) So if you've been struggling at times with this question, am I even saved given this condition of battle and failure? Uh, Listen carefully to what God says in these words. He begins the eighth chapter with this phrase, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What an amazing and timely promise. (laughs) That wretchedness that we feel that Paul identifies for us under direction of the Holy Spirit and puts into the end of the seventh chapter, that wretchedness that we feel in the face of our struggle day by day with sin, this struggle in this inner warfare, does not mean we are not really saved. 
the reality of the struggle, which God says, let's understand it's real. Let's admit it to ourselves, admit it to God, admit it to one another. The reality of the struggle is not intended to rob us of our security. No. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so the question has to come up in your mind, in my mind, as we stand before God in light of these things. Why can I feel secure despite the inner warfare? Why can you feel secure despite the inner warfare? And God says, here's the answer. Here's where your security can rest. Romans chapters 1 to 5 have made it plain to us that if we have repented, meaning accepted the truth about our sin and the consequence of it, eternal accountability before God, the inability for us to solve that problem, if we have repented of our rebellion against God, and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and rested in his work for us on the cross. We have passed out of condemnation into life. Practically speaking, what that says is that our performance is no longer the basis for our redemption. You see, we're struggling with insecurity as redeemed believers because of our performance. Because we see the battle going on. Because we often see ourselves failing in the battle. And God says, listen, let's take a step back. You're not accepted by me. You have no eternal life before me because of your performance. You have eternal life before me because of your redemption. Not your performance. Our justification before God is rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how he puts it here. There's no, therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of sin, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You see, our, our personal performance is no longer the issue in terms of security for eternity. The issue is Christ's performance, his perfect life. Our justification, remember Romans 5.1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our justification before God is rooted in Jesus Christ. It's not rooted in the level of success we have shown in our efforts to please God, either before turning to Christ or after turning to Christ. If we are in Christ, then we are his. We are secure. We are eternally safe. Love that phrase. We are eternally safe. We are justified and at peace with God. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the truth. And so he begins by reminding us of that. He says, now listen, this reality of this inner battle, this inner warfare, it's a reality I want you to acknowledge. I want you to recognize. I want you to turn to me in dependence to resolve. 
But it's not a reality I'm putting there or trying to draw your attention to, God says, in order to make you feel insecure in your salvation. I am drawing your attention to it so that you can remind yourself that at every point along the way as a believer, your redemption is resting in the performance of the Lord Jesus Christ, not you. And then also reminding you that although you've been redeemed and I've made you a new creation, I've left you in this body of flesh and you need the enabling power of the Holy Spirit to solve the problems. Don't feel insecure. Feel motivated to live in dependency upon the Holy Spirit. Do you follow that line of reasoning? What a great way to start out chapter 8. Here's the point. Feeling wretched is a proper response to when sin occurs in our life. We're supposed to feel wretched about it. We're supposed to feel downer. We're saying, oh Lord, I don't want to be that way. But it is not intended to wreck our assurance. Wretched. Yes. Wrecked assurance? No. Instead, the great irony here in the beginning of the 8th chapter of Romans is this. <laughs> Far from being a reason to have our wrecking of assurance take place, the wretchedness we feel that Paul identifies at the end of chapter 7 actually becomes a somewhat ironic basis for assurance of salvation. Then you say, well, how can that be? That just doesn't make sense, Gary. How can that be? Well, listen, how is this the case? Because the unsaved individual never feels the depth of wretchedness that the saved believer feels. And you say, well, how, why? What's the difference? Because if you've been saved, you've become a new creation. As I said earlier, God's made us new at the deepest level. And now at our deepest level, the desire of our heart, as Romans 7 put it, is to do right before God, to please him with our lives. And therefore, that's a fundamental change in our condition. Who we were before that time, while we might feel guilt about sin at times, was not driven by the desire to live for the Lord and to please him. No, no. But now that's the desire of the deepest, the core of who we are. And therefore, when we're not doing that, when we're falling prey in this battle to sin and we're giving into it, we feel a wretchedness the unbeliever doesn't know. You feel wretched like Paul, oh, wretched man that I am. <laughs> Take hope. You wouldn't feel so miserable if you had not come to know Christ as Savior. You see it? What an ironic twist. The very misery of failure becomes a foundation for assurance. Oh, brother and sister, I hope you understand that. This is not to say that sin is unimportant. It is not to say that God doesn't want us striving to grow in our faith as disciples, to live more righteous and holy lives. Of course he does. In fact, most of the New Testament, most of the epistles, they're all about helping us to grow. But what God does want to remind us of is that we don't grow in order to be saved, and we don't grow in order to stay saved. We're saved because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. We grow in order to please him, in order to gain what he has called us to be in this world, in order to reflect more and more what our heart really now wants us to be. You see it? <laughs> the unsaved never feel the wretchedness of the believer. 
a person who was very influential in my early Christian life said, listen, the most unhappy people in the world are the redeemed who are not living and growing as disciples. To be complacent or stumbling as a believer means we are really at the deepest level, dissatisfied and wretched. Praise God that it's so. It's God's loving way to say, I won't let you be content, not growing. Isn't that a good thing from the God who is really there, who he says is our Heavenly Father, that he makes us feel wretched when we're not growing? I think it is, because he wants to help us grow and find victory. So, the chapter 8 begins by reminding us of the true basis for our salvation. <laughs> you see, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. <laughs> set free from accountability eternally, for our performance. It's a past tense, by the way, in the Greek here. It's not that God will set us free. He already has set us free from accountability. That's the wonder of the gospel, the wonder of justification. The second thing, of course, he says here to remind us about, because these aren't new thoughts, they're rooted in the preceding chapters, is that God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could never do. Knowing the law was never enough to overcome sin. Trying to keep the law was never enough to make us perfect in such keeping of the law. Our best efforts, therefore, could never save us. And so God, as it puts it here, has done what the law could not do for us. He sent his son who perfectly kept the law. Who, and who says he takes our sin upon him and gives his righteousness to us. Isn't that a wonderful, amazing, and beautiful picture? Ultimately, of course, chapter 8 begins with that synopsis of the first part of the whole book, which is, this is what God did in sending his son to die for us. As he puts it in verses 3 and 4, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in accordance with the righteous, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The Lord Jesus, perfect. The Lord Jesus became the ultimate and proper sacrifice for sin, the atoning sacrifice. The Lord Jesus' life then is credited to us in response to our repentance and faith in that gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. Okay, let's pull it all together here. <laughs> he begins the eighth chapter by saying this to us. The inner struggle with sin that chapter 7 has clarified for us. We didn't need chapter 7. We already knew the reality of it. But chapter 7 helps us to see God is understanding that reality too. This inner struggle with sin was not intended by God to be a reason to rob us of assurance of our salvation. And so put the assurance question out of your mind. That is not the issue here for the redeemed believer. This is not a question of assurance of salvation, of certainty of eternal life, of confidence that we passed out of judgment into life. No, get that off the table. Replace it with the responsibility question, not the assurance question, the responsibility question. What do I mean by that? Well, 
The continuing struggle with sin doesn't affect assurance, but it very much does affect fruitfulness, joy, inner peace in this walk, in this life, while we await the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ or the Lord taking us to be with him. That's the point of chapter 8 and chapter 7. And so what God is calling for us to do is to take the very misery, the very note of reality that chapter 7 ends with and chapter chapter 8 begins with, take that reality to motivate you to take the steps to move toward living in victory instead of in defeat. And to move toward living in victory is going to require, number one, a determination that you need to grow, and number two, a determination that you're going to be obedient to what God says. And fundamentally, and perhaps most importantly, that you will do those things that enable the Holy Spirit's empowerment in your life because you cannot carry out your obedience and determination apart from God's strength to do it. And if you understand that, then you're in a good place to begin to understand verse 5 and forward where we begin to learn more about the Holy Spirit's enablement in the life of the redeemed believer. It is not there for the unredeemed, but for the redeemed. The Holy Spirit is indwelling us and is ready and enabled to empower us. Join me as we continue in our study of the book of Romans as we now further in chapter 8 will examine the work of the Holy Spirit to help us in this battlefield. God bless.